That was so very wonderful, wasn't it? What a benediction. What a wonderful message. Oh my goodness. Thank you for that ministry. So much appreciated. So helpful to bring us to this season. Thanks for being here at the Bible Hour time. Gary Mills told me he has a surefire way for me to empty out the fellowship hall from now on. He told me to start telling my jokes and people would run in here immediately. So, be warned. This is the concluding message from our ministry that we've had on Second Peter, and I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Second Peter. We'll go through some verses and read some of them as we go along, and then we'll read the last five verses of the last chapter of Second Peter. I'd like to thank Mike and Caleb for passing out the outlines too. We'll try to follow along with the outlines. We thank the Lord for the various thoughts shared over the past several weeks by different ones among us from the book of Second Peter. We trust for the Lord's enabling in all of us to take what has been shared, uh, apprehend it, appreciate it, and apply it. May the Spirit of God do those things for us. Second Peter tugs at our hearts because it is, by Peter's own declaration, a statement that he'll soon be dead. So these are his last words, the last words that we have communicated from him. The words are not haphazardly given. Rather, what Peter does is he gives some affirmative statements of truth, and then from that, he draws a series of conclusions from those things. The letter follows along with, uh, le- uh, with words that are very simple to see and understand, such as, for this very reason, or therefore, or since, and if then. There are several times that those words occur. So it's a logical uh, book that Peter has put together for us. The thrust of Peter's thoughts in this letter, the major message he seems to want to impart to those that are reading and listening and studying the letter is to be growing, developing, increasing, enlarging in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The purpose or the thrust of the letter is for people to be growing and developing, increasing and enlarging their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're to draw upon all that God has given them to become all that God can make them and let nothing, no one, no false doctrine, no false teacher, no foul sin stop them from becoming who the Lord Jesus wants them to become in the growth of their lives. Peter will illustrate this himself in the passage today about his own growth over the years. And he wants his sisters and brothers to grow in the same way. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this book of Second Peter. Thank you for the, these final thoughts by Peter that he's communicating and that uh, we enjoy them and that we appreciate them. We ask your encouragement for us. May the Spirit of God uh, be the one that is uh, instructing our hearts and minds today. And we commit this time of study to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do a quick review of the letter. So let's look in chapter 1 at verses 2 and the first part of 3. May the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, this is one of the declarative statements I'm talking about. Here's what Peter says. God has given to us everything that we need. It's already been given to us. And so from that declaration are going to come some conclusions that he has about this. So God has given us all things. He's granted us every precious promise, the word of God, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. Let's continue on in the reading there. Uh, Verse 4 by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So, the purpose of the Word of God is so that we can partake of God's nature, of the divine nature. That's the thrust, that you can grow, your your life can be grown into this partaking of the divine nature of God. God has given us everything we need for that. Let's read verses 5-7 through now. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Because God has given us all things we need for life and godliness, His precious promises to enable us to become partakers of the divine nature, Peter now makes a very reasonable recommendation. He first gave us a resplendent report. We have all things. Now, a reasonable recommendation. Here's the recommendation. Take all the things that God has given to us and add them to our faith. I urge you to go back to listen to Jack Bainline's message on these verses, 2 Peter 1, verses 5-11. through They're in the chapel website. And the encouragement by me to you is to go back and listen to that message again. For me, these verses are the key to the whole book. God has given us all the things that we need. Now, take these things and add them to your faith, your salvation, so that you'll grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else in the book that follows is commentary about our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please notice the phrase, all things, or these things, or these qualities. It's repeated five times in ten verses. In verse 3, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 12. So Peter is saying, add these things to your faith. And the things that he's talking about are virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. I'm going to draw from what John Glock taught us a year ago in January uh, from 2 Peter. These qualities are like ingredients in a recipe. You've got them. And now you put them into yourself. You grow as a result of this. I used to have a very hard time with this passage because I thought it was you don't get one thing until you fully have the previous thing. So, for instance, I could not have... Knowledge until I had completely, completely understood and completely grasped the thought of virtue. I couldn't have self-control until I completely grasped knowledge. I couldn't have steadfastness. In other words, you couldn't have the one until you had the other, the previous one. No, that's not the way it is. John told us you take these things and you put them into yourself. In fact, you don't put them in. 
God's already given you all things that you need for life and godliness. So you take those and you mix those up in your life. Or we'll learn that it's God taking these things and putting them into our lives so that we can grow in the Lord Jesus Christ and become partakers of the divine nature. Some of you may be saying to yourself, Preacher, preach to yourself. God is working on me. Now, the obvious lack of shortage of some of these ingredients in my life, of virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, they're easily seen and observed. God is working on all of us. Do you remember Joe Perriel's message from Ephesians 10, 2.10? We're God's masterpieces. And He's working on us. Here's another way of saying it here in Second Peter. God is enabling us to grow into the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I urge you today, uh, don't let me interfere with what God is trying to say to you. Don't let the messenger spoil the message. The Spirit of God seeks to speak to you today about your growth about our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's also a modifier in here about adding or supplementing these things. Peter tells us to be diligent in these things. The thought or the word occurs three times in three different places. Verse 5, make every effort. Verse 10, be all the more diligent. And at the end of the letter, as Ryan gave us last week, be diligent. This is not an unspiritual thought. Thought. This is not the DIY network here today. It's not do-it-yourself in how you grow in your knowledge and in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is being extremely gracious to each one of us to allow us to participate in the act of growth in our Christian lives. God has given us everything we need, but now He allows us to participate in this. He encourages us to be diligent, to be active in this. Again, I encourage you to go back to Jack Bainline's message and listen to it. God is working out our salvation and we work with Him. It is being yoked together with God in this process. There are various levels of achievement and development and various shortcomings for us in our development as Christians. This place, our local church, the gathering of ourselves together is a place where our shortcomings and failures can be shared. This is where we pray for one another. Where we support one another. Where we share with one another. Where we help one another in our growth of diligently adding to our faith. I hope this is clear for you all. The reason recommendation of Peter is for us to grow by adding these things to our faith. Then there's a reminder and remembrance. Uh, verse, verses 12 through 15 in chapter 1. Therefore, I always intend to remind you of these qualities Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, 
since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter is saying here, I'm going to remind you about these things, about these different aspects that are to be in the growth pattern of a, of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love. He's reminding us again and again that these things are to be added. And he says, I don't mind, uh, I don't mind saying this to you. I am going to remind you. I'm reminding you here at the end of my life. And here we are 2,000 years later remembering what it was that Peter told us about adding these things. Then there's the reality of revelation. That goes on here in uh, the rest of the chapter here, 16 through 21. Peter speaks of his own experience as far as the reality of revelation is concerned. He tells us that he heard the voice from the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw and heard the living word, the Lord Jesus. And he's seen the prophetic word fulfilled in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter has heard God call from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter heard the public sermons of the Lord Jesus Christ, the private conversations of the Lord. He experienced Jesus Christ up close and personal. Peter had seen the fulfillment of dozens of Old Testament prophecies about the Lord Jesus. Peter had preached about the fulfillment of these things in his sermons at Pentecost, at the Council of Jerusalem, and at Cornelius' home. Peter knew of the truth and power of the Word of God in its practical and prophetic sense. The Lord's first sermon in Nazareth, the Lord said, This day in your ears is this Scripture fulfilled. He was quoting from Isaiah 61. And he says it's fulfilled right now before you. Peter experienced this. The Lord was asked about taxes. He tells Peter, go get a fish. In the fish's mouth there will be a coin. Take the coin out and it will pay the taxes for you and me. Peter saw that and experienced that in this profound prophetic fulfillment. I'll never leave you, Lord, even though all the others will forsake you. I'll never leave you. I'll stay with you until I'm dead. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And then perhaps a dozen hours later, in that early morning, the prediction of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God is fulfilled there in the spot. Peter knows of the accuracy of the prophecies of the Word of God and their absolute and complete fulfillment. Chapter 2, we have a righteous reproach. The righteous reproach is where Peter now expresses full-throatedly and authoritatively the disgrace, the disapproval, and the destiny of those who would distort the truth of God's Word. He says false teachers will be among you. There is no doubt about it. He then compares the false teachers of with Old Testament situations where the Word of God is distorted, disobeyed, and blasphemed. Peter spares no words about the condemnation of these false teachers and what will happen to them. In the context of the letter, Peter is concerned that the false teaching will prevent Christians in their growth, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter wants nothing to change or alter Scripture so that people are able to grow in their lives.
Then there's a repeated reminder in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. On the basis of what is said about the fulfillment of Scripture from the Old Testament, Peter now reminds and tells the Christians that there are other prophecies that are still to be fulfilled. Just as the Old Testament prophecies about the Lord were fulfilled from Psalm 8, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 6, Isaiah 53, the book of Jonah, and many other places, they were fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ, living, dying, being buried, rising again on the third day. Even so, as those prophecies were fulfilled, Peter now says to them, there are other prophecies that are going to be fulfilled from the Old Testament about the Lord Himself. In Zechariah chapter 12, Matthew 24 and 25, in John 14, and many, many other passages where prophecies about the Lord from the Old Testament or from the Lord's words about Himself that are going to be fulfilled. The rapture, the great tribulation, the return, the millennium, the new heaven and the new earth, along with many other prophecies about the day of the Lord, the day of God, a new heaven and a new earth. All of those are going to be fulfilled. Here is why Peter can say that so authoritatively. There were Old Testament prophecies about the Lord Jesus and they were fulfilled. I saw it. I witnessed it. I was the subject of such prophecies. Do you think that now there's going to be a failure to fulfill those prophecies in the future? No. The prophecies will absolutely be fulfilled. Everything that the Scripture says about the future is going to come to pass. There are some who would say, where is the Lord's coming? Everything is going along just like it has in the past. Don't believe them, says Peter. The Lord is patient, not wanting anyone to perish and for all to come to repentance. Don't mistake His patience for slowness. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. In 1 Peter 3.10, we have this resolved reality. It's what I've been speaking to you now. Peter says, if the, old, if the prophecies about the Lord were fulfilled, in the first arrival of the Lord. The prophecies are going to continue to be fulfilled in the second arrival of the Lord. It is a reality. It is as good as having happened. And in the mind of God, it has happened. As an eternal being, everything is in the present tense for God. And He sees the sweep of this brief period of human history complete and fulfilled with absolute fact. And now God is gracious enough to give to us these future facts. And Peter talks about them here in this portion of Scripture. Ryan talked about it last week. It's about the day of the Lord. This time when God... In when God comes into the events of the earth directly, there is the hideous aspect of the day of the Lord. A time of tribulation is going to come upon this earth that is unlike anything 
that has ever occurred before. The horrors of the Holocaust will look like a Sunday school picnic in comparison with what's going to come upon the nation of Israel. Hunted down and hounded by an awful, evil, satanic leader of a group of nations in Europe Preserved witnesses, 144,000 of them, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It's going to be just like John the Baptist's gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It'll be true. During this awful seven-year period, it appears during the first three and a half years that there's going to be a time of peace. But then in the last three and a half years, The mask is taken off and the awful beast now pursues the nation of Israel with great zest and zeal. Those who have come to faith during this time of the great tribulation, they hide these people. They provide food for them, clothing for them. When they're hungry, they give them food. When they're thirsty, they give them drink. When they're in prison, they go and visit these people. And then the Lord says there in Matthew 24, when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, these Jewish people who are being pursued, you've done it unto me. It's an act of faith. Now, dear believer, you and I won't be here for this. The church is long gone. The Lord Jesus Christ has come near the earth and with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, The dead in Christ will rise. Those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's a future fact. And God graciously, wondrously reveals it to us. And then following the awful time of tribulation, Jesus Christ doesn't come near the earth. He comes to the earth with a sword in his hand and his vesture has been dipped in blood riding this great white charger and we are coming along with him as we come to this earth and the Lord executes judgment upon the earth. He dashes the nations like a potter's vessel. He establishes a great kingdom with the capital being Jerusalem. And there is a time of peace here upon this earth. It's never, ever happened before. Where the lion and the lamb lay down together, the child plays upon the black adder's hole. Where the kings of the earth take their retinues and they go to Jerusalem to worship the King, Jesus Christ. All of this is future fact. It will happen. And then the unbelievable awfulness of it. Satan during this thousand year period has been locked into a bottomless pit. But then he's released. And can you believe it? That after a thousand years here in this earth of righteous and wonderful reign, the absolute rebellious, sinful nature of man comes out 
And when Satan comes out to deceive the nations for a season, a season's three months, I don't know how long it will really last. There are, I can't tell the number, I'm going to say millions of people that happily align with Satan. They've been secret sinners during the thousand years. They hate going to Jerusalem to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't wait to be loosed of that yoke. Why should I go and worship this individual? I want my way, in my time, in my ability. And then God has no alternative. A terrible time of judgment comes. Satan, the beast, the false prophet, they're thrown into the lake of fire. There's a great judgment that takes place and those people at the great white throne judgment have the books open about their lives and their names are not written in the book, the Lamb's book of life. And they are... Oh, dear ones. They're lost in the lake of fire. You are not consumed in that lake. You're not burned up. It's a place where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then God does a final cleansing action. Everything that is here, everything in the universe, is completely consumed by the fiery judgment of God. And He creates a new heaven and a new earth. And we are a part of that eternal state. Now, I'm going to stop and just share the Gospel here. Dear one, where do you want to be for eternity? Locked into an awful, terrible place called hell. I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress. I'm presenting Pilgrim's Progress to the kids at King's Club. And Christian has gone through the valley of humiliation. And as he goes, it's so dark, he can only see a step ahead of him at a time. But he comes to this place where these awful, awful moans and groans and crying out and just hideous, hideous sounds. And what it is, is he's going by the mouth of hell. And how thankful Christian is that he's not there and won't be there. How sad he is that those who are there and those who will choose to not go the narrow and straight path that he's walking to the celestial city. Dear one, I appeal to you today, receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Enjoy an eternity in heaven. Believe these future facts. That's for the unsaved. Peter now has... For those of us that are saved, future facts. How should we uh, be living? Let's read uh, verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you and I to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's what Ryan read to us last week. On the basis, it's so reasonable by Peter, on the basis of what the future is like, What are your priorities? Where do you spend your time? Where do you invest your effort? He's speaking to Christians now. You know that everything's going to be burned up. 
by the fire of God. The elements are going to be dissolved by this fervent heat. Do you not see the priorities in your life? The time, effort, energy, and where it should be spent. The real life results of having a prophetic future presented to you. Let's read uh, verses 14 through 18 now. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord Jesus Christ as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. There's a relevant review here. Peter says due diligence. Be diligent in connection with your growth. Then he has a revered reference. He talks about Paul's epistles. Paul has written to you the same things that I've written to you about as far as growth is concerned. You can find them in Romans 5. Tribulation worketh patience. Patience experience. Experience hope. You can read about them in Philippians chapter 4. Whatsoever is good, whatsoever is virtuous, whatsoever, those things add the, think on those things. In Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 4, we're to be growing and Paul's written those things to us. But then he has this to say, not about Paul's epistles, but about Paul's person. Here's Peter being a living example of growth. Thirty years ago, Paul and I had our run-ins. <laughs> Paul at the church of Antioch withstood me to my face. I was experiencing the freedom that I had as a believer with Gentiles. I ate with them. I conversed with them. I was with them all the time and had complete freedom in what I did. But then... Some Jewish believers from Jerusalem came up and I, I started to withdraw from those Gentile believers. I segregated myself from them. I was a hypocrite. And Paul came into Antioch and said, now what are you doing? You were perfectly free before, but now these people come and you change? How can you live in that Hippocratic aspect? And now 30 years of history has gone by. And this is what Peter is saying about this wonderful person, Paul. Paul had a grander, greater vision of the church than I ever had. He had a vision of where the middle wall of partition between the Jew and the Gentile was broken down. Where there's neither Jew nor Greek, but we're all one in Jesus Christ. Paul established churches outside of Jerusalem, in Asia and in Europe. And for a long while, I was very content to be there in Jerusalem. 
And really, if I'd had my way, Christianity would have been just a small sect of the Jewish religion. But now Peter says, praise God, I've grown. I have a larger vision. (laughs) I have Paul's vision because Paul had Christ's vision for what the church would be. And I love Paul for who he is, for what he's done. And get this, for the Scripture that he has written. Peter is a living example of adding to his life virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Now this passage says, grow in grace. This wonderful final verse here. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll spend some time on grace here. There are many aspects of grace. Please listen, dear ones. There is saving grace. My salvation is by God's grace. God has given to me, to us, what I did not deserve. My sins are forgiven. My debt of sin has been paid for. I am a child of God. I'm a part of the church, the bride, the building, the body of Christ. I'm a part of the flock of God, but the Lord is my shepherd. I am a part of the priesthood of all believers. I'm a part of the kingdom of God. We have all been gifted by God to serve Him in the church and in the gospel missions of the world. I'm a citizen of heaven with a heavenly home. I have inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for me. All of these are part of the saving grace that God has so liberally, so wonderfully, so wondrously poured out on me and upon you. There's saving grace, but then there's sovereign grace. God continues to pour out His grace upon me in my saved situation, my saved life. Let me think about four with you. Angelic protection. Only in glory are we going to become aware of the amount of angelic protection that God has given to us in our lives. Sometimes in Scripture, God draws the curtain aside. Elisha prays, Dear God, let my poor benighted servant Gehazi see the fiery host of angels that are all around us. Open his eyes to a greater vision so he can see it. Daniel in the lion's den has King Darius, this Persian king that has control of much of the known world at the time. And he's worried about Daniel. He comes to the lion's den before the sun is up. Daniel! Is your God able? Yes. God has sent His angel to shut the mouth of the lion. And I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Twice in the Lord's life we have this absolutely direct aspect of angelic protection. The Lord in the wilderness after 40 days and after the temptations of Satan You have an angel coming there. That's God drawing the curtain aside. Angelic activity. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it says in in chapter 5 of Hebrews, the Lord almost dies there. 
It is the ministry of an angel that comes to him at that time. We have Peter. How he could sleep the night before his execution, I don't know. But there he is in prison and an angel. I don't know if the angel kicked him. It says it smote him on the side. <laughs> he wakes up. The angel then takes him out through the gates of that prison there in Jerusalem. And it's God drawing aside the curtain and saying, I have my sovereign grace at work in your life through angelic activity. This time of the year is a time where we openly celebrate the fact of angelic activity. We've got a longing couple, a lowly maid, a longing husband, and a laboring group of shepherds all touched by angelic activity. Mostly to bring messages. Zechariah, your prayer is heard. Your wife's going to have a baby. <laughs> Give me some proof about this. Alright, you're going to keep quiet for quite a while. <laughs> Mary, Joseph. I, I, I do think of Joseph. Oh my goodness. Joseph being a just man demanded that this pregnant woman to whom he was engaged and must have become pregnant when she was visiting her cousin there in the hills of Judea, comes back, I want every elder in this village to come around her and stone her to death. That's justice. No, 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 no. The desire of Joseph was to put her away privately and then... The graciousness of God, an angel comes to Joseph, Joseph, son of David. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It happened just exactly as she told you. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Angelic activity. I'll have to admit, the older I've become, the more I'm aware of the angelic activity in my life. Not in the present moment, <laughs> but looking back at how God has worked and saved and preserved my life. Sovereign grace. Another person. God only, not only has angelic activity, but He brings people into our lives. You might be sitting next to one right now. That was supposed to be a joke. All right. <laughs> this is God's doing. He arranges the people that are in your life for His purposes and for His glory. Let's take just one example. God brought Barnabas to the church in Jerusalem with money that he sold from land that he had back in Cyprus. God brought Barnabas to Paul after none of the other disciples would have anything to do with this person who had murdered people in the church. Barnabas was brought there to introduce him to the disciples. Barnabas was brought to the church of Antioch to help that growing work grow. Barnabas went to find Paul to bring Paul to Antioch to help with the growth of that church. Barnabas was brought into the life of John Mark. That's just one example of one man being sovereignly arranged in the lives of different people for God's glory and praise. Angelic protection, another person and another place. I'll give a personal testimony. How in the world did I end up on the lower deck of a bobbing little ship in the middle of the Bosporus 
there off the coast of Istanbul, talking with this tall, handsome young man named Faisal. A guy from Saudi Arabia, a medical student. He's speaking just as clear in English as could be to me. And for almost an hour and a half, there's Faisal, stuck with me, <laughs> talking about the gospel. My dear wife is on the upper deck. She's praying for me. <laughs> but I'm giving the gospel to Faisal. I don't know what happened. I prayed for Faisal. We communicated by email, I still pray for Faisal that he'll come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. God arranges the places for us to be sovereignly. I never anticipated that kind of situation. But God in His sovereignty arranged it. And oh, I'm praying that someday, for eternity, I'll be with Faisal in glory. That a seed was planted and that it would grow into everlasting life. And then, not just angelic protection in another person, another place, but... Another purpose. Why did God bring this person or this situation into my life? I don't find them or it pleasant at all. All I am is prodded, provoked, perplexed, and perturbed. Dear God, why are they here? Why is this here at this time at this place? And God's reply to us is, I've got another plan that you know nothing about. And they're there for your growth and for your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's sovereign grace. There is His sustaining grace. He who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. When we sin, God's grace is greater than our sin. When we stumble, God's grace will supply our need. When we stray, God's grace will patiently lead us back. When we share in our weaknesses, God's grace will support us before our brethren and provide grace of understanding and care in them for us as we share our weaknesses together. There is saving grace, sovereign grace, sustaining grace, and sanctifying grace. God in His way and in His time, in His work, sets us apart for His purposes. It seems like this sanctifying grace takes place over a long period of time. And there are negative connotations and implications. And some of us perhaps have even experienced the negative aspect of sanctifying grace. Because people who think they are sanctified often stay above and aloof from those who are sinners. They have no interaction with sinners. It would hurt my sanctification. That is not sanctifying grace. Jesus is a friend of sinners. The publicans, the harlots, the unclean, the adulteress, the thief are all a part of the contacts that the Lord Jesus Christ had in His ministry here on earth. God help me. Who are the sinners with whom I have contact with to draw them to faith in Jesus Christ by my sanctified life? 
the lesbian, the queer, the transsexual, the oppressor, the abuser, the embezzler, the cheat, the dictatorial, the racist, the supremacist, and me living a sanctified life to minister the gospel to them. Do we see ourselves there? I have a prayer. Oh, for the sanctifying grace of God to be at work in me this day so that God might bring a sinner to salvation because in my sanctification I was willing to be the friend of sinners. There is the sufficient grace of God. The unlimited, unexpendable, inexhaustible, infinite grace of God. This is what John Phillips says about this. Come demons, come disease, come death. The grace of God through the Lord Jesus conquered them all. What needs do we have today? Spiritual, physical, mental, financial, circumstantial, emotional. There is abundant grace for all of God's saints, for all situations, and for all our sins. Now, I wrote that. And I realize, you know, Phil, you can become awfully flip. Because you don't understand me or the situation that I'm in and all you've done is spouted a formula just now about the sufficient grace of God. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what I'm going through. And there you are speaking about the grace of God. I'm not speaking it. The Word of God is speaking it to you to grow in the grace. May I lovingly say, be diligent about this. Work at it. Beg for God's grace. Let's pray. I'm not finished, but I'm going to pray now. (laughs) Dear God, may we as an assembly, as a family of faith, experience the outpouring of the grace of God upon us in a way we've never had before. You know the various situations that are here in the assembly. And we need Your grace upon grace upon grace. Help us, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus, Amen. Grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Please let me develop this in a little bit different way. Ephesians 3.19 says, to know the height, the depth, the length, the breadth, And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And as I read that, I thought to myself, 
Peter wants us to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians, Paul tells us you can't know. It passes knowledge. So what do we do here? All right. Uh, just get, let me give you a, a little analogy, if that will help us here. The highest point on the earth, the highest mountain on the earth, is Mount Mauna Kea, six miles from the Pacific Ocean floor up to its peak. Mount Everest is five and a half miles from sea level up to its peak. I usually think of that as the highest point on earth. The deepest part of the earth is the Marianas Trench out in the Pacific Ocean, seven miles deep. The deepest point on the surface of the land is the Dead Sea Valley, and that's a quarter of a mile deep. Let's take Everest and the Grand Canyon for me. Grand Canyon a mile deep. That gets me thinking about the height and the depth. Does the name Kami Rita Sherpa mean anything to you? Perhaps Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary will ring a bell. They're the first two people to climb the height of Mount Everest back in 1953. Kami Rita Sherpa is 50 years old this year. And since 1992, he has made 24 successful ascents to the summit of Mount Everest. The last one he made was this year. The latest one he made. He's still planning others uh, to come. He is the world expert on the height of this earth. Does the name Richard Quattaroli mean anything to you? Perhaps John Wesley Powell might mean something to you. He went through the Grand Canyon in 1869. There was a previous expedition. A guy took a steamboat and thought he'd go through the Grand Canyon. That crashed real quickly. This is in 1857. Listen to his name. Joseph Christmas Ives. The boat crashed. He went on a skiff and still went through there uh, about 12 years before Wesley Powell. Richard Quattaroli is now 78 years old. He has gone through the Grand Canyon hundreds of times. He has written over a dozen books in the Grand Canyon. He is considered the world expert on the Grand Canyon. The height and depth are known by these men. I started to think, that's the height and depth here on this earth. What's the height and depth of the other planets we've got here? They're on Mars. The one on Mars is called, the mountain is Olympus Mons, 14 miles high. Three times the height of Mount Everest. The deepest valley is Valley Marinus. It's six miles deep. It's almost the length of the United States, 2,500 miles long. These are the known heights and depths in our, in our solar system. I then thought about, what about the other star systems here in our Milky Way? There's a hundred billion stars in our galaxy. And of that, scientists now, astronomers now have identified 3,200 star systems that have planets going around them. There are thousands more out there. What's the height and depth on those planets? And then I thought, how many galaxies are there? Here's the... <laughs> this reminded me of last night, give or take. We asked you to say how many uh, people were at your wedding, give or take. 20 on either side. Here's the rough estimate by uh, astronomers. There's 170 billion to 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. Now, I've been talking here about the height and depth of mountains and canyons or valleys. 
We have an awful lot of exploring to do here to try to find the height and depth. But you know what, dear ones? I'm not talking about the heights of mountains and the depths of canyons or valleys. I'm not speaking about the universe. I'm speaking about the author and the creator of the universe. He is outside, above, below, beyond, before, and after the universe. He is God. He is the Creator. He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And we are being invited here in this portion of Scripture to grow in the knowledge of God. C.S. Lewis says, farther up and farther in. There's no limit to the joy of knowing our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ponder these. He is a Creator that became as one of His creatures. He is a shepherd, and yet He is a lamb. He's a priest, and yet He is the sacrifice. He's outside creation, and yet He is in you and me. He's omnipotent, yet He was hungry, thirsty, and tired. He's omniscient, and yet He says, of that day and of that hour, no man knows, not the angels of heaven, neither the Son, the Father only. He is a sovereign. He is sovereign, and yet He has given us free will to accept or reject Him. He's wealthy, yet became poor. He's the supreme monarch, but He became the suffering man. Consider any of these features and start to explore, start to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's about to put down his quill. Grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. To Him be glory, both now and in the day of eternity to come. Growth, grace, and glory. Quite a way to end a letter. Thanks for your patience today. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank You for this book of Second Peter. Thank You for revealing to us future facts. And that we can now live our lives according to those facts. Dear God, thank You for the opportunity and the ability by Your grace and goodness to know the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We commit ourselves to You and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.